Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ken. Good morning. Man, I believe you. You sound good this morning. It's great to see you here. And uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 in just a moment. So if you want to grab a Bible and go ahead and get there and uh, get your finger on the verse, we're going to be starting in verse 8. And a couple of things before we get there. One, just a quick announcement. Um, this month has five Wednesdays in it. And so that happens twice a year. And every month that has, every time that happens, we do what's called Christ in Culture. So the fifth Wednesday of this month, we're doing Christ in Culture again. It'll be our second time to do this. And this is a time where we set aside on a Wednesday evening. We come into here at 6.30 and we spend time looking at a culturally hot topic from the perspective of Christ, therefore Christ in culture. And so um, I haven't announced the topic yet, but with all of the, uh, the presidential race fired up and all the topics spinning around, you can rest assured it's going to be something pretty hot from what you're hearing on the media. So uh, we'll announce that next Sunday what the topic will be, and hopefully you'll make time to be here with us on the fifth Wednesday of the month for Christ in Culture, 630. All right, so we're going get, to uh, get rolling here in Revelation chapter 2. Continuing in the Revelation series, um, if you're visiting with us today or just joining us after having been gone, we're three weeks in, and, uh, and so far we, uh, we've covered chapter 1, and uh, in the first part of chapter 2, which is where we get into the seven, church, the seven letters to the seven churches, and, uh, and so last week we covered the church of Ephesus, this week we're looking at Smyrna, and, uh, and so I just want to just reiterate something for us, probably every Sunday, um, I want to keep the main thing the main thing, so... The very first Sunday, I talked about the difference between being end-time phobic and an end-time maniac. That, that either way, right, if you get into this camp of just phobia, so therefore you never think about the end time, there's no expectation, right? And so therefore there's no hope. And so in the midst of a, of a world that, that at times seems like it's potentially spiraling out of control, if you don't look forward to a, to a good ending, right, you can, you can live within a great deal of despair. And so it's, it's necessary to think about the end times. However, if you become an end time maniac and you're consumed with it and everything that happens in life is interpreted as a sign, we could very easily lose sight of today and the very real responsibilities and the callings that we have on our life right now. So what we're after is, is a balance between the two. Right? We want to think about and discuss the end times in a way that causes us to live today in a way that would honor Christ and his return. The second thing is, as Ken prayed, ultimately, right, we're going to talk about a lot of different perspectives and theories and interpretations, but when we get to the end of the story, it's not up for interpretation. We're looking forward to the return of our Savior. Now, what happens between now and then, we're going to talk about, including things like the tribulation and the millennial reign and, and the timeline of events, but in the end, what we're longing for is what? The second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead when God makes his dwelling place with man again as he did in Genesis 1. And so that's what we're after here. So what we're going to do today, we're looking at the second letter to a church. It's the church of Smyrna. Just give you some background on Smyrna. And if you're joining us today, with us today, some different interpretations on these letters. So Revelation opens with a general introduction of the author John and Jesus, the one speaking. And then what happens right after that in, in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus speaks le seven letters to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor, the Roman world that, was, that was, was current for John's time, around 90 AD. So these cities actually existed and churches existed in these cities. However, another perspective would be that these symbolically represent churches of the future, maybe time periods. So if that, if that theory was to run out, then the first church was Ephesus in our uh, study of, of uh, Revelation 2, that would then reflect quite possibly the first century church, the church under the apostles. Then, uh, as the first century became second century, what happened is, as the apostles passed away, they handed off the church to the next generation of church leaders, the patristic period, or the, the period of the church fathers. This is where um, a lot of thought began to generate in terms of theology. So, just to kind of let you know what was going on inside the church, for the first century church, a lot of the emphasis was Jesus himself, Jesus who resurrected from the dead. These were eyewitnesses to that account. So as you can imagine, they were consumed with that. They were consumed with this idea, like, like you will never believe this. He rose from, like, he rose from the dead, y'all. Like, this is a big deal. 
What happens in the second century, as those men and women pass away, the church is handed off to the church fathers. That is still an important part of our theology, but then the, the, they had the, um, the bandwidth, the mental capacity, began thinking about other areas of theology. And so you have this arise of systematic theology, debates, heresies were spinning. A lot of things were going on in this next era um, that quite possibly Smyrna could have represented. So what we're going to see today is that the church in Smyrna Um, first of all, is one of the only two churches that Jesus doesn't correct. He commends them for what they're they're doing well, and he encourages them to keep going. They were also one of the churches facing um, probably some of the most most, um, severe persecution and torture. And let me explain why. So Smyrna being the second largest city in the Roman world, uh, and it was also... um, it was also probably one of the, the most central hotbeds for paganism. Um, the temples that were there, uh, there was the first temple to Roma, which was the spirit of Rome. That temple was there. Zeus had a temple there. Emperors had temples there. They had one area in Smyrna that had two temples connected by like a mall and market area. It was not just part of their worship. It was part of their commerce. And so a lot of pagan worship going on in Smyrna. So persecution actually followed out of that. But part that, the part that I didn't even realize is how significant the Jewish persecution was against the Christians in Smyrna. It's actually going to be mentioned today in our, in our passage in just a minute. And, so, and if you think about it, it was actually the Jews who arrested Jesus first and put him on trial and then handed him over to the Romans. And so that is still going on in the second century, and it's going on in Smyrna in the first century, as we'll see today. Um. Let's go ahead and get started and read verses 8, 8 through 11. So in similar fashion to all the rest of the letters, Jesus speaks these words. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so we're going to look, first of all, what was going on on the ground in real time for the people who received this letter firsthand the first time in Smyrna, okay? Uh, So the church was established in Smyrna. Uh, Matter of fact, one of the the bishops who led the church in Smyrna in 155, Polycarp, you may be familiar with that name, was a bishop of the church, was actually persecuted by the Jews and the Romans, and he was killed. Matter of fact, the Jews are noted as the ones bringing the firewood uh, to, to set him on fire. And so this church was very familiar with persecution. Even their bishops have endured persecution from both the Romans and, and the Jews. What we're going to note, first of all, we saw last week. So if you're just joining us today and you're going to stay with us in the series, I highly encourage you to listen to the first two sermons because there's a lot of background information that helps us understand what's going on. Here's an example. Last week, we finished chapter 1, and we got this vivid description of Jesus' return. And he was described as a priest, but he was also described as a ruler and as a soldier who would return. And so we saw this vivid description of his eyes and his mouth and even his feet and what he was wearing and and just this glory that was on him. And so what's going to happen now is as we read Revelation, there's going to be references back to those Descriptions. Here's an example. So today, as we're looking at the church of Smyrna, the characteristic that is referred back to is the fact that he, as we just read, was the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And so next week we'll come back, we'll look at the church in Pergamum, and a different description will be brought forward from chapter 1, and we're going to see how that description plays out and encourages those Christians there. Now what we're also doing is we're not only asking what did it mean for the Christians on the ground in real time in 90 AD, or what it could have meant for the Christians in the second big time period of the church history, if that's potentially what this refers to. We're also going to ask the question, what does that mean for the church today? 
Okay, what does that mean for me? I mean, other than, that, other than a great history lesson, how does this help me lead my family? How does this help me raise my children? How does it help me as a member of the church? How does it help me as a follower of Jesus to know more clearly who God is and what his will for my life actually is? So let's walk through this together. So we're going to look, first of all, at the way Jesus describes himself. So for them, he wanted them to see him as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Now, this first and last uh, wording isn't new. It's, it's all over the Bible, and we've already heard it several times already in the book of Revelation. This phrase, the first and last, has a lot of its roots in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, God oftentimes describes himself to the people of Israel this way. We're going to look at a couple of examples from Isaiah uh, to see why God would describe himself as the first and the last to his people. So from Isaiah chapter 48, verses 12 and 13, you can, you can turn there or jot down the address and, and follow up this week, but let me just read this out loud. So listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. This is Isaiah 48 and verse 13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And so we get this description. God's saying to the people of Israel, this is who's speaking to you. I'm he. I'm the first. I'm the first and the last. I'm, I'm the one who laid the foundation of everything that you see and understand and know and feel and see and touch and smell. I laid the foundation of it all. But not only that, I hold it all in my right hand. Now, this is interesting because we've already seen Jesus described that way in Revelation, haven't we? Regardless of what you think the stars symbolize from last week, that where are they? They're in his right hand. He is in control. He is sovereign over the universe. And so the Old Testament describes God as the first and the last for this reason, so that his people would see him, right, as the creator and the sustainer of everything. In Isaiah 44, starting in verse 6, here's a few more verses describing God as the first and the last. Isaiah 44, 6 begins, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I have appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. And so in the Old Testament, God presents himself to the people of Israel here. A couple of examples from Isaiah. I created this, everything that you see. I sustain it. I hold it in my right hand. Nothing has permission. Nothing does anything without my permission. And here, he describes himself that way again, and he's bringing encouragement, isn't he? He's saying, so therefore, don't be afraid. And we're going to bring that back up in just a few minutes. Don't be afraid. But he's speaking his identity to his people so that they would have courage in the midst of fear. So now Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna, and he's calling himself what? The first and the last. The first and the last. What? Connecting himself to God. I'm the first and the last. But that's not the only description he gives of himself. So... The first and the last, if you're taking notes with us today, by the way, if you're not aware, we have sermon notes in the seats in front of you. The first and the last, that phrase presents Jesus as the God of the Old Testament who created and governs the world. So when we see that phrase, first and last, that's what we need to be thinking. Oh, God is identifying himself as the one who created and governs or sustains the world. But the next phrase, who died and came to life. Now, this one's a little bit more obvious, isn't it, for us? As Christians, we, we talk about this a lot, that we have a cross up here on the stage representing the one who died and came to life. Jesus isn't still hanging on the cross, right? So we just present the cross. It's empty. He has died, was buried in a tomb, and resurrected and came to life. And so he's bringing that description out to the church in Smyrna, facing a great deal of persecution. He wants them to know what? I'm the first and the last. I've created it. I sustain it, right? I, I'm, I'm God. So therefore, find courage in the midst of your fear. And he's also saying what? I'm the one who died and came to life. I'm the one who died and came 
to life. If you're taking notes, who, who died and came to life, this phrase presents Jesus. He is the Savior of the New Testament who conquered death. And so for whatever he wants to do in the church of Smyrna, whatever he wants to say to them, he's laying it on this foundation that this is who he is who speaks. The first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Jesus is the Savior of the New Testament who conquered death. Let's look at the beginning of verse 9. The first thing he says here is, I know your tribulation." So I would say, regardless of how you approach Revelation, whether you're a person who feels like this is symbolic of a future church era or it was just about what was going on on the ground in real time, I think on some level we, we, we all need to agree this was actually going on. He's saying, I know your tribulation. So Jesus is speaking. He tells John, write down everything you see. John's writing it down. And so Jesus is speaking to the church through John the Apostle, and he says, send this out to all the churches and have them read it out loud. So for them, when they're sitting there in church, probably not quite as fancy a building, uh, but they're sitting there in first century, 90, mid-90 AD, persecution happening all around. Many of them didn't sleep the night before because of the, the terror that they heard going on in the streets. So for those Christians sitting in that church are hearing this word from God saying, I know your tribulation." Very personal. Very personal. I know your tribulation. Now, we're going to look at why God says that to us more specifically, but let's just start with our natural gut reaction to tribulation. One of the first things we tend to feel is God isn't aware, and so we need to go make our case. God, are you aware of what's going on in my life? And oftentimes our prayers feel that way, and we oftentimes with a sense of what we deserve and what is right. God, look at what is going on in my life as though God isn't aware. And so we start with this understanding. God says, before we go any further, I just want you to know, you don't have to build your case to me. I know your tribulation. I know it. Now, this wording is really uh, reflective of something God says about tribulation in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So the people of God, Israel, they're actually in slavery in Egypt and had been so for, for several hundred years and it was becoming brutal and, and painful. And many of, the, of God's people, even though that God had made this promise to Abraham, they had began to think that God had forgotten them. He wasn't aware of what was going on. Somehow he changed his mind. He changed his plans. You ever feel that way? Like this, this can't be what God wants for my life. Somewhere along the way, God changed his mind or he abandoned me. And, and what, what I thought was going to happen isn't going to happen now. And so this is what they were, that was kind of the general feel of the people of God in Egypt in slavery. And so in Exodus chapter 3, this is the burning bush, by the way. God speaks something incredibly powerful to the people of Israel. And he says this in verse 7 of Exodus 3. This is way back in your Old Testament. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. Now, we're going to talk about how in the midst of persecution, time is of the essence in a minute, right? Uh, like, like, you know, if I'm on vacation, um, seven days is a short period of time. But if I'm in prison being beaten and tortured, seven days is like forever, right? And so for the, the people of God that God is speaking to in the Exodus, a long time, suffering had been going on. And so God says, I, I hear your cry for mercy. I've seen your affliction, and I know your suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. He's telling Moses, go, go say that to the people. In the same way, he's telling John to go say that to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through right now. Remember, I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, and I know your suffering. So let's, let's talk about then how that applies. Because Jesus is the first and the last, think about that, first and the last, beginning and the end, therefore he sees our affliction. So we're going to see as we go through Revelation this really unique connection with Genesis 1 and 2. And three, as we get to the last three chapters of Revelation. And, and, and unmistakably, we're going to see God is the author of the story. He's the first and the last. But 
What we need to understand is he understands every little story in between, including yours. So when he says, I am the first and the last, he's saying to everybody, I see your affliction. You can bring it to me, but you don't have to plead your case. I see, I see what you're going through right now. I'm the first and the last. But then the second part of that is, is because Jesus is the one who died and came to life, he also knows our suffering. What does that mean that he knows our suffering? He knows it because he has walked through it. There isn't an ounce of hardship, suffering, or affliction in your life that he hasn't faced. A great deal in your life that I haven't faced, but you can't say that to Jesus, right? So he is a God who not only sees your suffering. So when he says, I know your tribulation, he's not just saying, I see what's going on. He's saying, I know what it feels like to have the Jews chasing after you, watching you ever move, wanting to turn you into the Romans to have you killed. Like, I want you to know that I know that. I know what it feels like. I've, I've been there. I see your affliction and I know your suffering. So he's going to mention in the rest of verse 9, we're going to see two different areas of suffering then that they specifically were facing. The rest of verse 9 says, and your poverty. So we know that the, the idea of poverty was something that the Christians in Smyrna were facing. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those, so slander, was another part of what they were suffering. Poverty and slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. And so in a very real and specific way, God says, I see your suffering, and I know that a lot of it is happening at the hands of the Jews. It's not just the Romans you have to worry about. The Jews themselves are turning you over. Now, the, the Jews had some, some motive here. Um, the Jewish population was given some sense of protection under Roman law uh, of religious freedom. Okay, and so, but from the Romans' perspective, they saw a lot of times the Christian and the Jews as the same group of people, and the Jews didn't want to be associated with the Christians, so they would push them away. So that's not who we are, and so they would oftentimes turn them in or be the ones that would bring them to the Roman authorities. Say, look, we found somebody who is who's worshiping a false god, and so they would have them arrested and tortured and killed. So the Jews were uh, very vindictive and uh, and very closely connected with the persecution. And Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, like, I see that. I see every detail of your suffering. You're not just worried about the Romans are due. You're worried about being sold out by the Jews. And I just want you to know I see that. And then he mentions even more specifically the poverty and the slanders. Let's talk about the poverty first. Um, we read about this in Hebrews 10 about five weeks ago in the Hebrew sermon series. In Hebrews 10, I'll read the verses in just a second, starting at verse 32, that um, part of the persecution against the Christians wasn't just that they were being arrested. That was part of it. We'll see that again in a minute. Arrested. But a lot of, um, there was a lot of disregard for their personal property. So as you can imagine, if there was a general law issued by the governing state against a certain group of people, everybody outside of that certain group of people could treat those people however they wanted to without any kind of sense of right correction or being in trouble. And so wholesale in the Roman world, the people who were not Christians were given permission to trample over Christians, take their stuff, burn their houses. So in Hebrews 10, that's described to us this way. Recall the former days when you were, when after you were enlightened, after you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? Publicly exposed. And then look at what he says. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I mean, he's word for word describing what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna, the poverty. Addressing the fact that they're being persecuted, and one of the ways that they're being persecuted is their stuff is being taken away or trampled or burned or destroyed. And, and that's, that's just the beginning of it. Then now you've got an economy governed by a Roman government, and the Christians couldn't get jobs. And so now you have this, not only do we take your stuff, we're not giving you the opportunity to earn it back, to work. 
And so persecution was happening on many layers and many different levels for the Christians. And one of the significant struggles was their poverty. Stuff was being taken. Dads were having a hard time finding a job. And so essentially, that was, a, right? So they were being forced into poverty, into famine, and even death indirectly, economically. And so Jesus says, I see your poverty, but you are what? Rich. It's interesting. We finished that Hebrews 10 passage. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Since why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Since you had something that they couldn't take away. So that you are rich phrase is describing the fact that they have Christ. And Jesus is saying, I I know you're suffering. I see that they are mistreating you and driving you into poverty because of me. Yet you have something that they can't take away. Me. Your poverty, I see your poverty, but you are rich. I want to break um, suffering, especially in the first century church, into two different categories. Because there's two different ways it gets described. The way it's being described so far is involuntary suffering. The Christians weren't out picking fights. They weren't looking, right, to suffer. They weren't chasing, most, for the most part, weren't chasing after suffer, suffering. They were just chasing after Christ. And whenever they were cornered and asked to denounce Jesus or be killed, they were saying, you're going to have to kill me because I'm not going to denounce Jesus. Okay, so involuntary suffering. But there was a voluntary sacrifice that the Christians were living out, even the ones who weren't necessarily facing imminent persecution in that moment. And this gets described all throughout the New Testament. And I think this is a place where we, here in America, so we ask the question, well, where's our suffering? Not a whole lot yet of involuntary suffering. We can see pockets of it, and, and, and we can see the signs that it could be coming our way, politically and legally, and, and, then, and then in the form of slander. But, right? but there's still a suffering and a hardship for us to bear. And we see this all over the book of Acts, Acts 2, Acts 4. I'll read a few verses from Acts 2, talking about the Christians. It says, this is Acts 2, 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings. You may have heard this passage. And what were they doing with it? Distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Well, it makes sense now. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. The night before, your house got plundered and everything ripped away. You know what? I'll go sell all my stuff, voluntary sacrifice, to help meet your needs because of your involuntary suffering. All throughout the book of Acts. Acts 4, it happens again. They were selling land. They were selling things they didn't need and bringing it all, laying the proceeds down at the apostles' feet, saying, here, distribute it as you need. This voluntary sacrifice. Even the church in Corinth was noted by Paul. He was encouraging this. Voluntary sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. And so even if today we're not facing involuntary suffering right now, we are being called into voluntary sacrifice, to live sacrificially. Why? For the same reason that they were rich, because we have Christ. Now this isn't a sermon against the rich or having things, but but what I think I would say this is that for all of us who are in Christ, because we believe that Christ is better than anything else that we have, there is this willingness to detach for the sake of others. Whether that's selling something to meet somebody else's needs or you have extra and you're looking for an opportunity to give it away or even if you're down to your last little bit and you find somebody who has less, you split it with them. Voluntary sacrifice. Not because God wants us all to be poor, but because why? Because Jesus is better than anything else here on earth. Throughout church history, Christians are marked by voluntary sacrifice, living sacrificially because we have Christ. You're poverty, but you are rich. Whether you are experiencing persecution or not as a Christian, you are called to engage in a life of voluntary sacrifice for the sake of Christ. If you're taking notes, because Jesus is the first And the last, the one who died and came to life, we can face involuntary suffering, involuntary suffering, and voluntary sacrifice with what? Joy and courage. 
And we begin to feel like God was not only writing this letter to the church in Smyrna, he's also writing it to us, right? Because Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, we can face involuntary suffering and voluntary sacrifice with joy and courage. Now Jesus is going to give them some instruction. And we're going to, we're going to talk about this. He begins verse 10 with actually a command. It's an imperative verb command. Do not fear. Fear what? What you are about to suffer. So not only is Jesus seeing what's happening on the ground in real time, he's also speaking forward, isn't he? With a forward perspective. He could be talking about something that's about to happen within a short period of time for these people. He could have been talking again about a church period to come. He could have been talking about us. But no matter what, Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Let's talk about that for a minute. How do you do that? Right? Tell me how to do that. Do not fear. This idea of uncontrollable anxiety that I know many people struggle with. Some, some uh, without any topic to be worried about, just worry. I know that moms are extremely prone to worry. We talked about this in our life group when we think about the end times. A lot of the reasons why moms don't want to think about it is because of our kids. There's anxiety wells up, fear, right? A sense of being out of control. There are other reasons that you may be dealing with some sense of fear or anxiety here. And Jesus says, there's something coming. I'm not going to keep that from you. I'm going to tell you what it is. But let's start with this. Do not fear what, is it, what you are about to suffer. I love, I love the Psalms, how the Psalms help us understand how to do that. How do we obey what Jesus just told us to do? Uh, Psalm 56, if you want to turn there, I'll give you a second. We're going to read a, a few verses, four verses in Psalm 56. It's in your Old Testament, about halfway through your Bible. It's a beautiful prayer to God. Psalm 56, starting in verse 1. The psalmist is obviously facing fear over what people are wanting to do to him. And so he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly or boldly. Now, think about being in that first century Smyrna church and reading the Psalms. That sounds very close to home, doesn't it? Like, I'm afraid to go out to the market right now because I'll be arrested or falsely accused. Like, if, if dad goes to the market to get something to bring home, there's a chance dad won't come back. This overwhelming sense of anxiety and fear of what could happen because men are boldly, proudly trampling. But look at what he says, verse 3. I love this one. Love this verse. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. It's not if I get scared. When I am afraid. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. What is fear anyway? It's when we realize ultimately we're out of control of something. Right? And so we're, that, that, that then reveals where our trust is in me. If I'm scared because of something that's out of my control, I'm ultimately focused on me and trusting in myself. And I can't fix this. I can't keep this from happening. Right? I can't provide this. I can't do whatever it is. And so I'm fearful when I put my trust in myself. And so the psalmist says, when I am afraid, I put my trust on you instead of myself. I put it on you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. So when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, and then I shall not be afraid. And then this question, what can flesh do to me? This is how I would describe what the psalmist just did. He recalibrated his mind. In one moment, his mind is thinking about what he can do or cannot do, and as soon as he realizes that, fear. Right? It happens in all of our lives. And so in that moment, rather than obeying his fear, 
He takes his focus off of himself and said, you know what, in this moment, I'm going to choose not to trust in me, but I'm going to trust in one who is bigger than me. First and the last, died and came to life. I'm going to trust in God. And when I trust in God, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? They can trample me. They can plunder my possessions. They can keep me from getting a job. They can make life really hard, and they can even cause me to suffer, as we'll see in a minute, to the point of death. But they can't take Jesus away from me. Just a, just a soul check for a minute, okay? This is pretty intense, isn't it? This is big stuff. This isn't just fluffy American Christianity. This is, we either believe the gospel or we don't. We either believe he died and rose again or we don't. We either believe that eternal life is going to happen or it's not. In no way do I feel like God in any place in the Bible devalues life or says to you you're not important or your children aren't important or that ultimately he doesn't desire for you to be safe and well-fed and taken care of. That's the end of the story. That's where we're going. As Romans 8 says, but right now we are facing a light and momentary affliction. But let's just be honest. 30 seconds underwater, right? It's, it's light and momentary, but it's still right hard. And we either believe he is the author and sustainer of life or we don't. Soul check, right? Do we believe the gospel or do we not? Now, he's writing to people who believe the gospel. They're living this out. They're doing well. He's encouraging them to keep doing what they're doing. And he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus says it this way in Luke 12, 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. That's it. That's the end of the rope for them, the most that they could do. Now, I'm not aware of any person in this room or in our church, for that matter, who's facing death right now. So surely it covers everything else in between, comfortable living and, and, and death, right? My friends at work, started making fun of me. I feel like these people were ganging up on me or right, isolating me because of my faith. I feel a sense of persecution or slander or a sense of, right, it, like everything's covered here. What can they actually do to me? Jesus says the most they can do to you would be to kill your body. That's it. Don't fear them. <laughs> fear the one who holds the universe in his right hand. That's the one you need to be looking at. This imagery from last week, I encourage you, go back and read John, because before he starts writing the letters, so what, here's what happened. John gets, and this is, okay, so John is the apostle, one of the closest three to Jesus. He got to go to the transfiguration. He's noted as the one in whom Jesus loved. They had a really close relationship, right? So you would think John encountering Jesus in this appearance was going to be like two bros, busting knuckles, big hug, big pat on the back, like, good to see you. But here's what happens. When we read chapter 1, this fierce description of Jesus, John says, I fell at his feet like dead. And he knew Jesus well, but what he saw took him to his knees. But then what does Jesus do? He reaches down with his hand and puts it on John's shoulder. And he says what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, John. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the one in control here. I hold the keys to death itself. And so we get this comfort from Jesus that even in the midst of facing death, we can have courage and comfort knowing what? He has conquered death. He can do what no man can do. Following Christ is not the absence of fear, but a willingness, an unwillingness to let your fear rule your life. In those moments where you feel fear welling up, if it begins to take control, ultimately it becomes your God, causing you to do desperate things or foolish things or to act outside of wisdom. We find ourselves out of control and we're grasping for control wherever we can find it. We, we do desperate things. But if we will instead allow God to recalibrate our minds and say, you know what, I'm not going to trust in myself right now. I'm going to put my trust in God When we do that, what we're saying is, ultimately, I'm submitting to you, God. I love how Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians about life and death. We won't read it today, but 
Like he was in jail writing this letter saying, you know what, I may die in here. You know what, to live is Christ, to die is gain. God, God has the keys to death, and I trust him with it. And if he, if he lets me out of jail, fantastic. I'm going to live for Christ some more. I'm going to preach some more sermons. I'm probably going to get arrested again. I'm spending my life for him. They let me out of jail, perfect. However, if I die, what? It's gain. Because why? I get to go be with him. And I'm done with all this affliction and suffering. And Paul says, I'll take it either way. Because Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, we are commanded to not let our fears reign in our hearts. That's the difference. Not allowing your fears to reign in your hearts. Not if I am afraid, but when I am afraid, what do I do? I will trust in you. I'll shift my trust off of myself and to you. Now, in verse 10, we're going to get a more specific description of what they are about to suffer. Okay? Verse 10, the rest of verse 10 says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, they, they knew this very well. Some of them had already been arrested. Matter of fact, John, the apostle, writing this down, had been arrested, and that's why he's on the, the island of Patmos. They kicked him out of Ephesus and sent him to the island to be exiled. So these Christians were very familiar with being arrested. Different from modern day being arrested. The primary two reasons you were arrested in the Roman world was detention for trial, to hold you until you faced your trial, and then after trial, to hold you until execution. Primary. Like, it wasn't primarily corrective, like what the modern day prison system is like. It was primarily to hold you steady so you couldn't flee or run or hide. We want to keep you at bay until we can try you. Then once we tried you, we're locking you back up until we can kill you. So to face imprisonment was almost certainly to face death. That's why Paul was writing that way. And so he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Now, this is really familiar or sounds very familiar, uh, similar to the language of James chapter 1 or Paul's language in Romans chapter 5 about how suffering leads to our good. Persecution leads to our good. Facing hardships leads to our good. Now, set the Bible aside for just a second. We're going to read James. You know this in your own lives. right? Almost everybody in this room is willing to admit you have faced a hard thing in your past, and after it was done, you can see how good came out of it. And you might say, I would never want to go through that again, ever again. But I am more mature for it. I am better for it. Good came out of it. This is what is being alluded to here in the idea of being tested. James says it this way in James 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. James is, I love James, and I, and I dislike him sometimes because he's setting me up right here. Count it all joy, my brothers. It sounds like we're going to revival services or church camp or like this is going to be fun. Count it all joys. Get excited when you face trials of various kinds. Oh, man, he just caught me off guard. Count it joy when you face suffering. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, referring to maturity, lacking in nothing. Then down in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? To what Jesus is saying through John now to the church in Smyrna. This language of being tested produces uh, perseverance, steadfastness, giving way to maturity. I mean, this is the idea of physical fitness. This is the idea of anything that we endure in life that's hard, it gives way to something better. And you only get better, you only grow, you only become more mature by walking through the hard things in life. If life were easy, right, that's, that's called being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And, and for a lot of folks who are, live a life that way, very privileged, 
they never even leave adolescence. They're just, right, little boys who can shave or, right, little girls who don't know what it's like to truly be a mature woman. And so, like, it's the hardships of life, just in general, that God uses to grow us. Romans 5 says the same thing. And so here, Jesus is saying to them, some of you are about to be thrown into prison. He encourages them. It won't be wasted time. It won't be wasted pain. Why? What does he say? He says that you may be tested. And then he says, for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, this is where we get to speculate for a minute. Okay, different perspectives on this. So when you, when you approach Revelation, regardless of what camp you come from, the two primary distinctions are literal or symbolism. Was it literal or symbolic? So literally, very literally, Jesus could have been referring to a 10-day period of suffering that they were about to face. It could have also been symbolic, like we use the word a dozen or a week or a month. And what we mean is a, a period of time similar to, and he could have been using that. It could have been referenced to Daniel 1 back in the Old Testament. Daniel and his, his three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into captivity. And they were, the, they were brought underneath uh, the authority who wanted to fatten them up. And so they were treated with all the best food and wine. And what did Daniel say? Tell you what, we don't want to partake in what the king has for us. Give us water and vegetables for 10 days and see what happens. Let us voluntarily sacrifice ourselves, right, and see what happens. It could have been you know, a lot of Daniel allusions in Revelation. It could have been a reference to uh, suffering that took place um, under 10 Roman emperors, starting with Nero. In the 90s, it was Domitian, ending with Diocletian. And we'll talk about this next week. Um, underneath Constantine, there was some relief of persecution. So it could have reflected, even though there were a lot of emperors, maybe 10 significant Roman emperors who brought specific persecution to the church. So those are different theories. No matter what, Jesus is saying, there is tribulation about to happen. Whether it's 10 literal days or 10 time periods, suffering is coming your way. Some of you will be thrown in prison. And you will have tribulation. And the encouragement is what? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let's end with this note here. Because Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life, we are to remain faithful in how we live Trusting Jesus with how we die. Faithful with how we live. Trusting Jesus with how we die. Now, again, we're in, we're in the North American uh, safe zone for Christianity right now, for the most part. Some persecution breaking out against the church a little bit in Canada. We've had a couple of instances in Houston where the church, you could say, was being persecuted maybe politically in some way. You can see you know, the political front. There's this front beginning to pose itself against Christians here. But for the most part, we're not facing what these folks were facing. Like if you lost sleep last night, for the most part, it was because you had too much caffeine or you know, you're worried about you know, something else besides somebody banging, kicking in your door and arresting you for your faith, right? So, but, but here's the thing. Like voluntarily, you and I are to live for Christ, sacrificially, Right? Loose, loose grip on the things here on earth. For the sake of others, for the sake of his kingdom, you and I may die, in fact, of old age. Right? That's quite possible that we won't die this way. But here's what we're saying. I trust you with my life, and I trust you with my death. And I will live for Christ every day you give me. Folks in the room who are over the age of, I'm just going to throw a number, 60, and you're faithfully following Jesus, you encourage me so much. Hitting retirement isn't about traveling the country and watching trees die and collecting seashells and sending postcards back to family. Like every breath and every day has purpose in it. And if you are traveling, see it that way, right? See it that way. God wants to use your every moment of a life, especially in light of what's coming. I want to pray for us now and invite the worship team to come back up. And uh, I, want to, I want to do this. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know God's, God's not a wimp. Despite the, the potential growing 
darkness here on earth and a sense that things are getting really rough out there when you watch the news and you scan what's going on in the Middle East and around the world and Russia and moving us. Here's the thing. He's told us from the beginning. I'm the beginning and the end. And I'm letting you know what's about to happen. So what? So that you will have courage and joy and remain faithful and trust me with your life and with your death. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the biggest decision you can make in life is what you're going to do with Jesus. It's just like I said earlier, soul check. You either believe it or you don't. The, 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 the Smyrna Christians, are living in a, they were living in a time where they, they couldn't mess around with nominal Christianity, facade Christianity, dress it up, put on your shirt, look like the, look like the people down the street kind of Christianity. Like this is the real deal. You either, you're either following Jesus, you're either in or you're out. And, 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 and he ends with this, he who has ears, let him hear. I feel like that's a, a call to us today. Do you have ears to hear? Are you aware that God is speaking to you right now and he's inviting you into a relationship? He wants to put his hand on your shoulder like he did with John and say, hey, don't be scared. I've got this. Don't be scared. I've got it. Anything that they can bring at you, I'm bigger than that. I've already shown you. I'm bigger than that. Do not be afraid. Trust in me. Jesus is inviting you to trust in him today, to take the trust off of yourself off your own intuition and reason, your own ability to figure things out, and to place it on him for eternity. That invitation is open to you today by faith. If you'd like for somebody to talk more about that with you or to pray with you, um, our prayer partners are already in place back there in the corner. They're here and they're ready. They love nothing more than to pray with you and to talk with you about what it means to be a Christian. For the Christians in the room, I feel a soul check today. At least, at least I do. A sense of stepping back and going, you know what? I'm not facing that right now, but what would I do if I was? Would I truly be able to trust Jesus with my life and with my death? And you know what the bigger question is? Do I really believe the gospel? And so I'm laying that out there for us as Christians to just for a moment of soul check. Do we truly believe what we say we believe and will we stake our lives on it? If we do, I think we should live every day for him. Our everyday should look a little bit different. I'm going to leave you with that. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to stand and sing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the very real, um, vivid, painful, and yet hopeful truth of Scripture. God, I thank you that you are a loving Father, and you don't hide from us what is true. You don't hide from us what we are about to be facing in life. Thank you that, God, with our eyes on you, with our hand in yours, we can face anything here on earth. Any amount of suffering, even death itself. Because we truly believe that you are the first and the last, and you are the one who died and came to life. I pray your Holy Spirit would meet us now. Fill this place, fill our hearts, call us forward. Call us forward to the sweetness of redemption, we pray in Jesus' name.